welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Ephesians 6.4 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What are the purposes and duties of the three estates? How does the gospel of justification by grace alone and through faith alone form and empower the Christian family? How is an attack on the Christian family an attack on this gospel? Families recently had the privilege of learning from Reverend Rolf Preuss at the Wittenberg Academy Family Retreat. Enjoy here, Plenary Session 4. I'll be, I'll be talking about this a little later, but uh, when I was a kid, my dad taught us hymns. And uh, one of the hymns we learned, which is one of my favorite, is the hymn that we've closed the matins with, uh, Praise to the Inadoration. And you know, it's so neat, I, I don't know, I'm sitting here with you guys singing this hymn that I have been singing since I was a little boy. And uh, there's something about being a stick-in-the-mud conservative, you know? <laughs> I kind of like being there with, with you all. Okay, uh, I guess we're ready to begin then. <clears throat> the uh, topic, our, our, our fourth and final topic uh, under the under the heading man and woman is the gospel and the Christian home. And let us read a passage you've already heard a couple times this morning. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. <clears throat> Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. <clears throat> God has established three authorities here on earth. We Lutherans refer to them as estates. God governs his children. He rules over them. He does so through three authorities, the domestic, the ecclesiastical, and the civil. And the domestic authority is set forth plainly in the fourth commandment. This is how we learn it from Luther's small catechism. Honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. We should fear and love God, because all legitimate authority comes from God. The three estates are not freestanding human authorities, but their authority comes from God, and we do not honor them as God wants us to honor them unless we first honor God. Now, God specifically mentions father 
and mother. From the authority of father and mother, all other authority derives. When God made man and woman in his image and blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply, he gave to the man the authority to name all of the animals from whom no comparable helper was found. And he also gave the man the authority to name his wife, who was the helper that he needed. And he needed her not just for his own sake, but for the sake of the children with which God would bless them. Before sin entered into the world by Adam's disobedience, God had already established the domestic estate. So God established the domestic estate, that of father and mother, before there was an ecclesiastical estate or a civil estate, because these latter estates were not necessary before the fall into sin. The father is the head of the domestic estate. He is the head of the home. We discussed this a little bit the other day, that the word for father in Latin, it, what is it? Somebody know? I knew you'd know. And so the rule of the father is called patriarchy. Patriarchy is not the product of evolution, of male chauvinism, of systemic racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, transphobia, or any other human fears. Patriarchy is what God established in creation. Our culture's assault on patriarchy is an attack on God. God rules through fathers. The book of nature teaches this. The Bible teaches this. <clears throat> I like that sweatshirt. After Adam sinned, God established the church to provide sinners with the salvation that God alone can give. Now you all know the account in Genesis 3. Satan deceived the woman and God cursed Satan. His curse was a blessing for those Satan deceived and led into sin. Death came upon the man and the woman as God said it would if they ate the forbidden fruit, and then God immediately promised life in the face of death. Before he spoke a word of judgment against the woman and the man, he judged the father of lies and the murderer of souls. Now, it starts off as if he's talking to a snake in verse 14. Verse 15 reads, Genesis 3:15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now I have a granddaughter who loves snakes. I don't. I would say that I don't like snakes because they're poisonous. But my granddaughter would correct me and say that they're not poisonous. They're venomous. She, she's a know-it-all, but I love her anyway. 
Now, I am not the expert on snakes that Rebecca is, but I do know one thing. Snakes don't bite because they hate. And that's because snakes are incapable of love or hate, which means that God was not talking to a snake as a snake, but he was talking to the devil who used the snake to lie to our first parents and lead them into sin and death. Because enmity doesn't describe the relationship between snakes and human beings. It describes the relationship between the devil and the woman, and specifically the relationship between the devil and the woman's seed. Now this is an interesting expression, the woman's seed. The word seed is used in the Old Testament to refer to a descendant because the descendant descends through the father whose seed is given to the mother who has an egg and then when the seed penetrates the egg that's where babies come from. But the woman doesn't have a seed. But here God through Moses speaks of the woman's seed. Well why? There's no such thing. Ah, but there is. In Isaiah 7:14, we read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here in Genesis 3:15, we are taught the virgin birth of, of Jesus, who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. He is God. Because only God can crush the serpent's head. Look at Adam. He was an innocent man, full of the vigor and strength of manhood. And even though he was innocent, when he went up against Satan, he lost. So the first Adam lost in his battle against the devil. The devil was more powerful than he. But the second Adam, the woman's seed, won. Only God can defeat the devil. So the woman's seed would be God in the flesh. <clears throat> Adam and Eve believed this. They had an understanding of Jesus Christ. They didn't know his name, but they certainly knew who he was and what he'd do for them. He would suffer. You shall bruise his heel, but in his suffering the devil would be destroyed. He shall crush your head. We got a, we got a famous word for that. I'll ask one of you pastors to share with us what is that word that I think it's like a Latin word, a proto, what, how's that go? I knew it. Proto evangelium. What does that mean? You kids, you're getting a classical education at home. What does. What does it mean? For three gold stars. Okay, it means the first gospel. The first, time, the first time the gospel is ever proclaimed is in Genesis 3.15, and God proclaims the gospel by cursing the devil. And so this is the gospel that Adam and Eve held on to for dear life. And this is the gospel by which the church was born, and then the church is what we call the ecclesiastical estate. It is the spiritual estate, and it has spiritual authority. And it's born by the gospel. 
The church, God creates his church through the gospel. Then he entrusts this same gospel to the church to proclaim to the world. The Bible says that we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God that lives and abides forever, 1 Peter 1.23. From the word that God gave to our first parents, the domestic estate gave birth to the ecclesiastical estate. And the domestic estate also gave birth to the civil estate. Remember Cain and Abel? After Cain murdered Abel, God established the civil estate and he spared Cain's life. Even though Cain deserved to die. Then later on, Lamech appealed to God's mercy toward Cain by claiming the right to kill anybody he wanted to kill. So then after the flood, God commanded the death penalty for murderers in Genesis 9 verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now we need the ecclesiastical estate because we need the forgiveness of our sins, and we need the civil estate because we need law and order. The authority given to the ecclesiastical estate is summarized in Jesus' words to his apostles, recorded in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now notice that Jesus says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, but he doesn't give all authority to his church. He gives his church spiritual authority. In St. Mark's Gospel, he commands his church to preach the gospel to every creature and promises that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. In Luke's Gospel, he commands that repentance and forgiveness of sins be preached in his name to the whole world. In St. John's Gospel, he gives his church the authority to forgive the sins of the penitent and to retain the sins of the impenitent as long as they do not repent. And nowhere does Jesus give civil authority to the church. Now here, let me just make this point. When somebody's talking about the, the synod, which, which is a servant of the church, the congregations, and talking about the, the fourth commandment, I hope a little thing goes up. The, 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 the church's authority is a spiritual authority. We'll get, I'm kind of getting off my text here, so excuse me. Thoughts just kind of flit in and then come out. I said that? <laughs> uh, the church doesn't bear the sword. The church's authority is the gospel. 
Now, we read Romans 13, 1 to 7 yesterday, but I think we should read it again just to have it fresh in our mind. God gives the authority of the sword to the civil authorities. And St. Paul talks about this in Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, there is a lot of confusion these days on what Romans 13 teaches us. You just heard these words. You've heard them twice now in two days. Some people, some Lutherans, have appealed to Romans 13 to argue that the American Revolution was wrong. I've heard Lutherans make this argument. After all, the Americans rebelled against the governing authorities. But Romans 13 does not give the civil power absolute authority. Romans 13 does not teach that King George was above the law. Some will argue against the Declaration of Independence because it says that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. And they'll say, are not just powers given by God? Well, there's something missing here. And what's missing is an understanding of the relationship between the domestic estate and the civil estate. When the Declaration of Independence says, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed, the governed of whom the Declaration speaks, when it says consent of the governed is not a collection of atomistic individuals without any other bond than the bond to the state. No, the governed of which the Declaration speaks are governed primarily within the domestic estate. And the Declaration assumes this. It assumes the primacy of the authority of the home. Civil authority derives from domestic authority. It can't repeal the fourth commandment. It depends on the fourth commandment. Do you all understand what I'm talking about here? This is very important, that the foundation for civil authority is the authority of mom and dad. And once that's denied, that's what denies their authority as well. And nor does the civil authority have the authority to interfere with the proclamation of the gospel. For the civil powers to put a muzzle on Christian preachers 
requiring them to preach through a mask is to claim authority that God didn't give them. And preachers have no business submitting to the civil authority when that civil authority is used to lord it over the spiritual authority that God has given to his church. The ecclesiastical and civil estates are both instituted by God, not in opposition to each other, but to complement each other. The spiritual authority of the church is greater than the civil authority of the state. The forgiveness of sins, peace with God, the Holy Spirit, eternal salvation, these are all greater than temporal peace, prosperity, and justice. Besides, the peace, prosperity, and justice the civil state is established to provide is always less than perfect, corrupted as we all are by our sin. We all want that perfect government. I was shocked. I was so disappointed in 1976 when this guy from Georgia, who said, trust me, I'll never lie to you, defeated Gerald Ford. Because I liked Gerald Ford. I thought he was a good man. So I was all bummed out. I remember my mom saying, eh, Rolf, you know. She just shook it off. No big deal. If I said that about Joe Biden, you might say, no, 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 no. You don't know how bad he is. No big deal. No, God's in charge. And he doesn't need... Well, I'm getting off of my text again. Don't let me do that. Somebody... Go like that or something. All right. But the point, the point that my mom is making is this. There is no perfect government, and you're never going to get it. And we Christians have never believed that there is a perfect civil authority. The word ideology, when it comes to politics, should be utterly uh, foreign to our thinking. We do not believe in political ideology because we don't believe that there is any kind of ideal political system. Why? Because of the effects of sin. Now you can have a kind of an approximation of justice in the outward sense and do as well as you can. But the church on the other hand, now it's true that like the state, like the, like the uh, civil authorities, the, the, those in the church are also corrupt and they're also sinful. Uh, however, this corruption can't corrupt the righteousness of God that he bestows in the gospel. So the church has the authority to forgive sins. And, and, and he earned that authority, gave it to the church, entrusted it to the church. And the fact is your pastor needs forgiveness as much as you do, but the forgiveness that he speaks to you is always true. It's always true, regardless of the condition of his heart. Whereas when the politician makes the promise, well, the domestic estate is primary. The ecclesiastical and civil estates have no authority not previously given to the father and the mother in the home. 
The relationship between the ecclesiastical and civil authorities is established in the home. So the father who disciplines his children, who relies on both law and gospel, he is exercising both the civil and the spiritual authority. The law tells you to love your neighbor as yourself. We learn how to do this in the home. The gospel tells you that God, for Christ's sake, forgives you all your sins. You learn what this means in the home. It isn't possible to bring up a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as Paul says, without teaching him both law and gospel. I recall visiting a parishioner in the hospital on Mother's Day about 30 years ago, and he said to me, it was Mother's Day, we're talking about mothers. Hey, thanks. Mm. That's cold. That's good. He said, Pastor, the best gift a father can give to his children is to love their mother. And that really hit me then. It stayed with me all these years because it's so true. Now, love is the gospel. Oh, the law commands it, but the gospel grants it. You can't teach your children to obey if you don't teach them that God graciously forgives them for their disobedience. You fathers can't teach this gospel to your children if you put their mother under judgment and treat her with disrespect. A man who abuses his wife abuses his children, and a man who loves his wife loves his children. St. John reminds us, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. As the propitiation for our sins, our Lord Jesus quenched the wrath of God against us by bearing that wrath in his own body. God is at peace with us. He sets us free from judgment. This is what love does. The father who loves his wife forgives her. The father and mother who love their children forgive them. Parents are sinners who know that they're saints. And since they know that God regards them as righteous for Christ's sake, that's how they see their children as well. Children need to be reined in by the law because their flesh is not willingly going to submit to anybody's authority. So parents are duty-bound to teach their children to respect them, to honor them even as they honor God. You don't have the right to let your kid sass you. You're, you're teaching the kid falsely if you permit him to sass you or talk back to you. But at the same time, parents are duty-bound to forgive their children their sins. 
And forgiveness given by a sinner to a sinner requires that the one who's giving forgiveness acknowledge his own sins. Now, you're not going to compromise your authority as father or mother by confessing your sins to your children. If you are wrong, admit it and confess it and ask for forgiveness. Parental authority does not depend on parental perfection. It depends on the word of God. If you bring your children to church to learn the gospel, you do good. If you do not teach this gospel at home, you do wrong. If God's word is confined to the assembly of the church and is not a central feature of life in the home, the children learn that life is not really lived from the gospel. The world in which they live is the world to which they are introduced at home. It is at home that they learn of both the ecclesiastical and civil authorities. Now we know from the social scientists that a father, a boy who has no father, is much more likely to run afoul of the civil authorities later on in life than the boy whose father was there <clears throat> with his mother as he was growing up. And of course we have seen this uh, ourselves from 1989 to 1997 we lived in the inner city of Racine, Wisconsin and it's a multiracial area where you have whites, blacks, and Hispanics and people have all sorts of ideas about race and uh, culture uh, you'd have real thugs in our neighborhood, and you'd have decent kids. And one thing that we learned very quickly is that it all depended on whether dad is there. It doesn't matter what color you are. What matters is, do you have a father? And not just somebody who's shacking up with your mother for the time being. Respect for the teacher, the policeman, for adults in general, is learned by respecting mom and dad. This faith is instilled in children at home. When I was a boy, I attended parochial school. I'm sorry, uh, just give me a second. It's, uh, was it hurting here, Dort? It's one of these things, you know, you don't get perfect health till you get to heaven, you know. Uh, it, was, it was not a bad school. They ended up quitting the Missouri Synod uh, because they were kind of dominated by the uh, faculty members of St. Louis Seminary uh, who ended up leaving the Missouri Synod. But we had a pastor. Well, we went to church every Sunday. And we went every evening that had evening services. And we had a pastor. He looked like a pastor. He talked like a pastor. He walked like a pastor. He had silver hair. And he would preach these beautiful sermons. He had a wonderful voice. There was only one problem. 
I couldn't understand a word he said. And so I said to Dad, Dad, I can't understand Pastor Mundinger's sermons. And Dad smiled and said, I can't understand them either. <laughs> now, my dad was a theological professor at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And sometimes he'd preach at vacancies in little towns in Missouri and Illinois. And I always understood his sermons. But I have to tell you, from my experience, my faith was instilled in me at home. That was the key time of my life at home. We would have supper, and then we would have family devotions. Dad would read a Bible story, and then proceed to ask the children questions about what he had just read, starting with the youngest and going to the oldest. In those days, the word catechesis wasn't in vogue. We didn't use that word, but that's what Dad was doing. We learned to sing good hymns. Dad taught us the Lutheran chorales. Daily devotions were a feature of my life. If somebody called on the phone during dinner or devotions, he was politely told that we were having devotions, call back later. My father led the prayers. I learned right and wrong at home. I learned to confess my sins. I learned the gospel. Dad didn't just talk about forgiveness. He forgave. He was known as a great theologian. I didn't know that when I was a kid. I learned that when I grew up. But I learned theology as a boy. And I learned it where I lived. And the theology that my dad taught me around the dinner table at home could have been taught to me by a father who was a plumber, a farmer, or a businessman. Theology belongs in the home because that's where we live. Now, I'm sure we all share the common lament that, that the breakdown of the family has resulted in a corresponding breakdown in civil righteousness. Those who are ignorant of the benefit of filial obedience at home will bring that ignorance with them into the world. The decay of our culture is the fruit of the decay of, of the family. I grew up on Leave it to Beaver and the Andy Griffith Show. Opie is Dork's age. The beaver, I think, is a couple years older than we are. And that popular culture of the 50s and 60s reflected more or less the biblical teaching of right and wrong. And then it changed. Sitcoms portrayed childish disrespect toward parents as cute or funny. The chastity displayed on TV and the movies in the 50s and 60s gave way to the celebration of sexual immorality in the 70s and beyond. The fourth and sixth commandments were repealed, and we all watched it happen on TV. I'm a baby boomer. Let me tell you a little bit about my generation. I was in the eighth grade when the monkeys song, Hey, hey, we're the monkeys, hit the top of the pop charts. Now there's one line in that song that's particularly popular. It went like this, cause we're the young generation and we've got something to say. We were the young generation, that was true. 
but we had nothing to say. The parents of the baby boomers were told to listen to their children and learn how to relate to them. We were all lectured about a generation gap that could only be bridged when the older generation was willing to learn from the younger generation. Now we have seen the fruit of this foolishness in the spectacle of a young girl from Sweden by the name of Greta Thunberg scream out to people old enough to be her grandparents, how dare you, and receive thunderous applause. That the breakdown of parental authority has damaged the civil estate is obvious and it's had an even more poisonous effect on the church. As we Lutherans try to hold on to the wonderful treasure of the church's historic hymns and liturgy in the face of the onslaught of cultural Philistines who toss out what is beautiful, wholesome, and pure in exchange for contemporary worship forms that combine bad music with even worse theology, pay attention to how and where this started. I'll tell you how it happened because I was there. What is today called contemporary worship began as an attempt to relate to the youth. We had youth services back in the 60s. Yes, they were trite, shallow, and annoying, but our parents had to learn how to relate to us. And we were told, this is what you want. Well, most of us didn't. I know why children choose to abandon the services of God's house when they're no longer under parental authority. It's because their parents didn't teach them God's word at home. Their parents skipped church for no good reason. They taught their children that the third commandment was more of a suggestion than a command. Young folks don't leave the church because the church's worship doesn't meet their needs. They leave because they don't know what they need. They didn't learn at home. And we're not going to bring them back into the church by debasing the church's worship. What they lack is a solid indoctrination in the wholesome doctrine of God's word. That's what they need. What they need to learn, when they learn to love the pure gospel, then they're also going to love the means through which God has provided it through the ages. Let me just illustrate this by something we sang today. So we're singing the Te Deum Laudamus, which I've been singing all my life. And is it just sentimentality when you're singing this and you think, yeah, you know, because I've been singing it since I was a kid. It teaches the faith. It teaches what we believe. And, and, and you learn to love the form, and then that actually becomes the means by which God strengthens your faith. And this is so also with the hymns. I cannot overemphasize. I am blessed with a pastor who chooses good, solid hymns. And, and, and that is, uh, we're not there to give vent to our religious feelings. We are there to be instructed in the word of God. And when the hymns teach that word, well, I'm kind of repeating myself, aren't I? 
But orthodoxy is dead without the gospel of the forgiveness of sins at the center. Learning the answers to questions remains purely academic unless we know what we really need in life. We need a gracious God. We need forgiveness of our sins. We need Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We need those we love and those who love us with Christ's love to love us with Christ's love. This gospel is not licentiousness that leads us bound to our flesh. It does, isn't a doctrine that denies God's anger <clears throat> against sin and sinners, but it's the heavenly doctrine of him who came down to this earth to live the righteous life God law, God's law requires of us and to die the death of sinners to take away their sin. It's not a truncated doctrine of bloodless grace that sanctifies sin, but it's the blood and righteousness of Jesus. And it belongs in the home. Yes, we send our children to church. We prepare them to be good citizens who obey the law and serve their neighbor. But as we do this, we're not sending them out to find what we haven't already given them. Because there's nothing in the civil authority that is not, first of all, the teaching of mom and dad in the home. And the gospel that's preached to them in the church is the same gospel we teach those children at home. And listen, you don't need a call from the church to some kind of man-made ministry of this or that when you have the call of God in your baptism. The first gift that God gives to our children through us is the gift of the new birth in baptism. And from this gift, our children learn who they are, they learn what they are, they're God's children, and they learn that at home. Our children belong to God. America is in decline. Our Constitution has become a dead letter. Leftist ideologues promote a dehumanizing and coercive ideology that replaces Christian categories with carnal substitutes. The church is corrupt. Pastors abandon true pastoral authority to rely on the ideology du jour grounded in the social sciences. Pastors become politicians. They set out to please men so as to secure their status among men. When pastors abandon the faithful preaching of God's word and descend into man-pleasing, they're only meeting the market's demands. Those with itching ears want something new as they're always seeking but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Dark times have overtaken us. But we know the truth. We know our children belong to God. God gave them to us and we give them back to God. We give them the word of God that will protect them and keep them in God's gracious care even as the civil and ecclesiastical authorities descend into lawlessness. We teach them how to be good citizens as we teach them to honor us. We teach them the Christian faith by confessing it ourselves, talking about it at the dinner table, engaging our children in theological conversations, as we discuss what's going on in our world, in our country, our community, our children are not burdens to endure until they grow old enough 
to be set free from parental responsibility. No, they are blessings throughout our lives. Through our adult children, God speaks back to us the same gospel we taught them when they were little children. So we defend the Christian home with the word of God. The Christian home is where we learn to live as Christians armed with God's word to fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of eternal life. Thank you. I think we got about 15 minutes to talk about stuff. Oh, should I call on Andrew? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think, you know, that text in Deuteronomy, the first thing, the first thing God says is, is that these words shall be in your heart. And I think he's talking there basically to the fathers of the families. What's the second thing he mentions? First in your heart, what's, what's the second he mentions? Teach it to your children. Then what? Talk about it. Talk about it. If the only thing your kids get uh, theological is just through a form during a set time where you do certain things and then you never talk about it beyond that and just sit there like a bunch of Norwegians. <laughs> how, how can you tell that a Norwegian is an extrovert? He's looking at your shoes. <laughs> Well, they don't talk. They just sit there. They don't talk. And of course, talking theology is such a wonderful practice. It's what, it's what Moses said in Deuteronomy. And uh, it becomes the language of the people. I learned, I grew up talking theology. I didn't know everything. And sometimes issues, you know, we worry about, we worry about conflict. I grew up during the battle for the Bible and that was going on at the seminary in St. Louis. That was the center of it. And it was really raging when I was, when I was like a, in my teens. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that the inerrancy of the Bible is the only issue the church faces. But, but when you face theological controversy with your kids, then they get to understand that theology is not just a lot of words, but it actually relates to reality. We're going to contend for something that's important here. And so don't be afraid to bring up controversial topics and talk about them at home, you know? Any other questions or comments? Yes, sir. Uh, 
I, I think so. He said, we're not a nation of laws, but of political wills. Uh, since I retired, I've had the opportunity to do a little bit of reading that I didn't have the chance to do earlier. I was reading a little bit by John C. Calhoun, who was a brilliant uh, man who uh, worried about uh, uh, the majority basically beating up on the minority and having and, and trying to counteract this, this will for power. People are always looking for power over others. And uh, basically, that's what we tried to do with our Constitution. I don't think, that, I don't think it's totally lost. I think that uh, I'll bet you these kids here, the education that they're getting, I don't know. I'm just assuming they're, they're understanding civics better than kids in the public schools. And they're learning a little bit about the history of our country and why we don't trust the government with every decision in our life, why we need to have checks and balances and all these good things that we learn about. And all it goes back to what you say. It's just power. It's just, it's just this will and that will. Um, speaking as an American Christian, I, I want to get along with all my neighbors. I don't want the government telling me what to do in areas that are not for the common good. And uh, I kind of resent a lot of arbitrary rules. I'm willing to pay my taxes, but uh, I inherited money from my mom and dad. I sell the money to build a house. Come back, the government wants a ton of money from me. Whoa. Where am I going to get that? And Minnesota, almost as much as the feds. And then I can't even complain because the Bible says, pay taxes to whom taxes are due. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't complain. Pay your taxes. Shut up. Yeah. Uh, thank you. That's a great question. I would say, no, it's not in the text. But in, 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 I would make a couple points about that. Uh, first of all, contrary to some po political thinkers these days, the Declaration of Independence uh, is not uh, the law. The Constitution is. Uh, I am speaking according to the assumption of the day that their culture didn't have what I refer to as this atomistic individualism where you just ignore the existence of institutions like the family. 
the existence of the family and the patriarchal family was, was, was a given. You didn't have to mention it, you know. And so I'm saying that when people today, uh, these, these, these uh, you know, Ganesio Lutheran types that want to make you feel like you can't be a patriotic American and still hold on to the Lutheran doctrine, uh, you say, no, no, no. No, the, declar the, the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution uh, is, is, this happens at a time when the domestic estate was respected unlike today. And, you, and, and, and why, I pa uh, Pastor Bean yesterday, uh, in talking about socialism, uh, uh, talking about the, the Mises Institute, what do the socialists want to do is attack, what do they want to destroy? What did he say, those of you who were there? They want to destroy the, the family, yeah. Why? Well, that way our loyalty will be to the state. And I think sometimes you'll have so-called conservatives who think they're more conservative than thou, and they want to trash the American Revolution, and they are operating with the premises provided by the left. And, and, and we have to say, no, I mean, uh, the home and the headed up by mom and dad, that home is the primary government, period. And that's what we believe and that's what we're gonna teach. And then our kids grow up confident too, don't they? I, I tell you, as a teacher, I, I, I was a pastor for some, some time, and so I taught other people's kids. And I, you can immediately tell, how do they get along with mom and dad? by the way they deal with me. If, 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 if they are respectful towards me, what does that tell me? They're respectful to mom and dad, you know? And uh, they are, ask any teacher. Do we have any teachers here? Yeah, ask any teacher. They'll tell you who the kids are. That They'll tell how the parents are by looking at the kids. And the best compliment we ever got we send our kids to the public schools. And then around the dinner table, we talk about what kind of false doctrine they were taught in school that day <laughs> and how the kids went after their science teacher for teaching evolution. That was always fun. Where the teachers say, oh, another Price kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody's got to set you straight. But anyway, uh, we would be told how well our kids were behaved. That was one of the greatest, the greatest uh, heartwarming things that a parent can hear, because they're just showing the respect there that they show to their mom and dad. Yeah. No, raising kids is a is a. It seems thankless, doesn't it? But it's not. It's just the most wonderful. I really admire you, you folks that are. Uh, committed to the education of your kids, uh, supporting organization like this. Uh, your work in the Lord is not in vain, and he'll bless you for it. And uh, so more power to you. I wish you very well. And uh, I also very much appreciate uh, being invited to talk to you guys. It's been a, kind of the high point of my spring. The weather stinks, but uh, <laughs> it's been good, good company here. So I appreciate, I appreciate your participation and attentiveness and everything. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.